0: Crown him, crown him Lord of all. He is Lord of all. That's not in question. The question is, will you, as Luke said, cherish him? Will you cherish him who is Lord over all things? Will you delight in him? Will you love him? Will you find your deepest satisfaction in him? That's the question. And the only way that we will grow in our affections for Christ is as we spend time in his word, Letting his words stir our affections, encouraging one another with fellowship and love and care and kindness, pointing each other to the glory and majesty of Christ. And that's exactly what we get to do this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We are continuing in our study of the Passion Week. And as we do, we are now staring at Good Friday which is good for us, it was not good for our Savior who died on the cross. We're going to take this day in a, in a few sermons because it is so full of glory that I don't want us to miss any portion of it. So last week we were able to look at the trials. This week we were going to look at the first three hours of Christ on the cross. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the last three hours of Christ on the cross. We will stare at our Savior in the moments of his dying and his death. There are many famous last words that people have shared on their deathbeds over the course of history. Some are philosophical and existential in nature. Bob Marley, his last words are money by life. William Henry Seward who is the architect of the Alaska Purchase was asked if he had any final words and he said, nothing only that we should all love one another. Ben Franklin, dying at the age of 84, his daughter told him that he needed to change position in his bed so that he could breathe more easily, and Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. Some people, as they are dying, look humbly back on the life that they lived. Sir Isaac Newton, when he died, said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have only been like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Leonardo da Vinci was also humble on his deathbed, saying, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. This is the guy who painted the Mona Lisa. Some on their deathbed, Hope in Heaven Blues singer Bessie Smith, when she died uh, right before, she said, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of my Lord. When Harriet Tubman died in 1913, she gathered her family around her and they sang together, and her last words before she died were, Swing low, sweet chariot. Beethoven, who was, uh, had gone deaf, said her last words were, I will hear in heaven. I will hear in heaven. Some people's last words are purposefully lighthearted and humorous. Drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987. And as he was being prepped for surgery, a nurse asked him, is there anything that you can't take? And his answer was yes, country music. (laughs) Wilson Misner, he was a successful playwright. And when he was on his deathbed, a priest came to him and said, I am sure that you would like to talk to me. And Misner said, why should I talk to you? I've just been talking to your boss. (laughs) Some words are words of kindness and love towards one another and towards loved ones that they will be leaving behind. P.T. Barnum said, Nancy, his wife, I want you to know that my last thoughts are of you. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, died at age 71 in his garden, and his last words as he was dying were to his wife, And he said, you are wonderful. Writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died. It was Valerie, the name of his wife. What about you? What do you think your last words will be? What do you think that you will want to be saying on your deathbed? It is good to think of our death. It is good to think of it often. I think one of the blessed byproducts of this chaotic COVID season is thinking of our mortality. We will all die. And the question is, how will we die? The question is, what will those words be? What will the legacy be that we will leave behind? This morning, we have the privilege of listening to Jesus' last words, the words that he spoke as he was dying on the cross. You have to harmonize the Gospels to get the full account of Jesus' last words. There are seven of them, seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And this morning as we begin this study of Christ's seven sayings, I I just want Charles Spurgeon to guide us with the rationale and the purpose behind why we are doing it. This is a quote that I quote often. Many of you will remember it, but I love this quote. Spurgeon says this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is, little love to our own dying Savior, little joy in our precious Jesus, little fellowship with the beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart, but don't stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once, go at once to the cross. There and there only can your spirit wake up. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead you may have become, let us go again. Yes, let's go again in all the rags and all the poverty and the depravity of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with love. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith. And the tenderness of our hearts. And then he says this, The more that we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. That's why I desire for us this week and next week to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. We're going to dwell at the foot of the cross and listen to Jesus' last words. These words are profound, bottomless in the depth of their profundity. And as we hear the voice of our Savior, we cannot remain unaffected. It is for us that Jesus died. Our sins nailed him to the cross. And so what we will do this morning, we will break it up into two sections, the first three hours on the cross, and then next week, the next three hours on the cross. But we will stare at Christ, and we will listen to his words, and we will, by implication, live out what those words mean for our lives today. So, Luke chapter 23, let's read the first of these seven statements that Jesus says on the cross. For context, let's go back up to verse 23. Luke 23, 23, this is Friday morning. The crowds are insistent with loud voices asking that Jesus be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man that they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Father, we come before you and we listen to the words of your son. He cried out, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, we are just as ignorant in our own sinfulness And we need forgiveness as well. And at the foot of the cross, we see that we have it. We have full pardon. Not because of our goodness, but because of the amazing kindness of our Savior. So, Father, I pray that you would affect us deeply as we stare at Christ. In the midst of all the chaos of being outside with the cars and the wind and the cold. God, I pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds to see Christ. May we see him and feel as if he died just yesterday. May we hear the cries of those gathered around the cross, weeping, tears staining their faces. May we see the blood dripping down from his back and from his hands and from his head and from his feet. God, help us to feel the weightiness of that cross that Christ bore for us, the cross that we deserved. And may all this be done for the glory of Christ as we find our deepest satisfaction in him, that we would love him more. God, that's what we want. We want to love him more. Help us as we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. Help our lives to become more noble, more full of the glory of Christ. Never to earn your favor or to earn your love, but because you have already graciously given it to us in Christ. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to see and behold wonderful things from your law. Give us understanding of the, the depth and the glory and the majesty of these words That Christ says on the cross. We pray in his precious and holy name. Amen. Last week we looked at the trials of Christ. You remember there were six different trials, three Jewish, three Roman uh, before Annas, Caiaphas, and the whole Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate again. We discussed the, the glory that is found in there and how Jesus was committed to the truth despite all the lies that were around him. Jesus was committed to the Father's will, even though it was going to cost him his life. And Jesus was committed to loving all who were around him, even though they might be his enemies. And at 6 a.m., 6 in the morning, the Gospels tell us that it was 6 o'clock when Pilate finally gave Jesus over to be sentenced and killed by crucifixion. 6 in the morning, condemned to die. So trials early in the morning, you remember the last trial, the last Jewish trial would have happened right when the sun was barely starting to peer out through uh, the, the darkness of the evening the night before. So maybe about four in the morning, 4:30 in the morning, he is taken to Pilate. Pilate then tries him, then sends him to Herod, then tries him one more time and, and finally hands him over to be crucified at 6 a.m. Jesus is going to be crucified at 9 am. So it takes three hours to get from the place where Pilate condemns him to die to the place of actual crucifixion. Not because it's a long way away. It's not. It's not a very long walk at all. The reason why it takes so long is because it takes preparation for the crosses to be given to the criminals. Criminals brought out. The other two criminals were uh, crucified with Christ. And then it also takes a long time because Christ himself cannot bear the cross that he is carrying. So Simon of Cyrene has to be brought to carry the cross for Christ. Another beautiful picture picture of substitutionary atonement. just like we looked at Barabbas last week who is worthy of death but ultimately is given freedom because Christ takes that death. So too Simon of Cyrene, not worthy of death, an innocent bystander, has to carry, The cross, And yet he does not know that that cross actually is his cross. He should die on that cross because of his sins. And yet Christ in grace and mercy says, I will bear it for you. I will bear your cross for you. So Jesus is going to be crucified at 9 a.m. And from 9 to noon, it's going to be sunny, just like it is today, just like it is right now. At noon, it is going to go pitch black darkness will cover the land, a supernatural darkness that we will discuss next week. And from noon to three, it is dark as Jesus is bearing the full weight of the righteous wrath of the Father. And then at 3 p.m., Jesus is going to die. So he's on the cross for six hours, broken up into two three-hour segments. The, The death that Jesus dies, crucifixion, is not about executing the seditionist. Rome perfected it, it was devised by the Persians and other people before them, but Rome perfected it as a means of putting down sedition. Not just executing the seditionists, but actually putting down the entire sedition that that person was trying to start. It was an object lesson. The victim would have been crucified high enough so that you could see them over a crowd, but low enough so that the dogs could actually nibble at their flesh. Jesus himself clearly wasn't a seditionist. In fact, he had been proven not to be, but he is dying the death of a common criminal, of a seditionist, of a traitor to Rome. And Rome made sure that crucifixion was four very specific and very crucial things. Crucifixion was determined by Rome and made by Rome to be, number one, very cruel, number two, lingering, number three, public, And number four, verifiable or certifiable. It was a cruel death. This was not a merciful death. This was cruel to put down sedition. Do not do what this person did. That's why there would be a placard hung around their neck or on top of the cross that they were dying on. So that as people were walking by, they would say, man, I don't want to die like this person. So how did they die? Well, they didn't pay their taxes or they fought against Rome. Okay, don't do what they did and you won't die like they are dying. It also had to be a lingering death. Because if you want this to be a billboard to show the citizens that are in your kingdom don't act like this person, then it has to be lingering. And and people would linger on crosses for days, up to five days, six days that they would be on the cross. It was just a, a free billboard. Don't act this way. And because it was a billboard, number three, it had to be public. It had to be seen by many. So they would crucify people right in the middle of uh, right on the edge of the road, right as the road would go into a gate. So uh, a bottlenecked area where you had to flow through this area. You couldn't get around it. You can just imagine walking with your kids into Jerusalem. And as you're walking by, there is uh, lined on the, on the road crosses with people just screaming in agony and pain. You just want to shield your kids, right? You want to just tuck them away under your cloak. You don't want them to see. And they're asking you, why are they screaming? What's going on? The brutality is evident for all. The last thing that Rome made sure about crucifixion is that it was verifiable. It had to be a verifiable death because you didn't ever want, if you're Rome, you didn't want anyone to claim that someone who was crucified survived because that would make the sedition even stronger. Rome did their best to try and kill this man, but he couldn't be killed. So it had to be a verifiable death. The four guards that were around the man who was being crucified, who were in charge of the crucifixion, those guards made sure that that person was not just dead, but good and dead. We even see that in the account of Jesus that we'll look at next week. Therefore, Jesus died a Lingering, cruel, public, and verifiable death that cannot be challenged, which is really important when we get to the resurrection. Sure, he could have been stoned, but stoning could be botched, right? That's Acts chapter 14. Paul is stoned either to death or they thought he was actually dead, but he wasn't. And he gets up and he walks away. You could survive stoning, maybe, potentially, but there's no way you're surviving crucifixion. Stoning was not uh, as... Lingering, obviously, it wasn't as cruel and it wasn't as public, usually in the back alley somewhere, but Jesus dies a death that cannot be challenged. All that by way of introduction to the death that he is dying. As he's dying, he will speak seven phrases, seven sayings, three in the first hour, four in the three in the first three hours, four in the last three hours. We'll look at the three this morning that he speaks in the first three hours. It's daylight. People are talking. Jesus is crucified. And the first phrase that he says is a phrase of forgiveness. So number one for our outline this morning, a phrase of forgiveness, a saying of forgiveness. We read it already in verse 33 of Luke 23. When they came to the place called the Skull or Golgotha, Not necessarily because it looked like a skull. I don't think that's why it's called that. It's called that because this is the place where executions happened. This is the place where people died. You can go to it in Israel today. You can go to it in Jerusalem. You can see exactly where this would have been and would have taken place. And they crucified Christ and criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, as he is being crucified, Father. Forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. This is a saying of forgiveness. As Jesus is either being nailed to the cross, being hoisted up on the cross, or maybe the first moments of the cross resting in the hole that was dug in the ground for it, he speaks these words. J.C. Ryle says this, These words were probably spoken while our Lord was being nailed to the cross, or as soon as the cross is reared up on end, and it's worthy of remark that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. While his hands cannot serve those around him because they're pinned to a tree, and while his feet cannot run to meet a need because they're nailed to a cross, still he ministers through his prayer. It's interesting to note his public ministry opened with prayer. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 says that Jesus was praying at his baptism. And now his public ministry will close with a prayer, with sweet communion with the Father, even in the moments of his death. Frederick Farrar says, At this moment of, un, of inconceivable horror, the voice of the Son of Man was heard uplifted, not in a scream of natural agony at that fearful torture, but calmly praying in divine compassion for his brutal and pitiless murderers. This prayer is actually uh, fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 says, he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He prayed for the transgressors. That's actually literally happening before our very eyes. So he cries out, just... If you stop and you think about what Jesus is doing, you cannot help but be amazed. His back had already been brutally whipped and torn open such that you could even potentially see the the bones of his ribs, blood pouring out. He had been given a a robe in mockery to wear and then that robe had been ripped off before he is on that cross. And then laid on that cross, I'm sure not delicately by the Roman soldiers, but forced down onto that cross. And they drag him up to where he needs to be, all along that timber that's rubbing against that raw open wound in his back. And then they stretch his arms out and they put his legs down. And they grab nails, not the kind of nails that we would think of that you would buy at Home Depot. These are enormous nails. These are enormous nails jagged, disgusting and they would place it on your wrist and they would hammer it into your flesh and as they were doing that Jesus is praying Father forgive them I don't know about you if I stub my toe I'm curled up like a baby until the pain goes away There's no way I can talk. Sometimes my kids will come up to me, I'll stub my toe and I'll go, ah, and I'll sit on the couch and my kids will come up and they'll say, Daddy, are you okay? And I'll just, just don't talk to me, get away from me. Jesus, as he is dying, is thinking of others. And not just as he's dying, but as he is being put to death with nails being driven through his hands and his feet, excruciating pain. Literally the word excruciating comes from through the cross, through the cross, because of the cross. And yet, on the cross, as he is being nailed to the tree, he is thinking of those who are murdering him and asking that the Father would be gracious to forgive them. A few observations from this prayer. He begins by saying, Father, Father. That's a crucial word because he's going to begin his seven sayings with that word. He's going to end his seven sayings with that word, Father in the middle he's going to change remember my god my god why have you forsaken me no longer father no longer reconciled intimate right relationship with the father but a torn unreconciled because of the sin that had been placed into his account but here the relationship is intact i I believe that you can make a very uh easy case uh, and most theologians would agree that jesus is not bearing the wrath of god until those back three hours until noon to 3 p.m., until the darkness comes over the land. Here, he's bearing the wrath of mankind, the anger of man against Christ for who he is and who he claims to be. But he says, Father, the relationship intact. A second observation. He says, forgive them. Now, this is crucial because they had not asked for forgiveness. This is so instructive for us. They had not said, would you please forgive me? And he says, yes, please forgive them, Father. No, you can forgive somebody in your heart before they ever even ask. You can forgive somebody in your heart before they even ask you for it. I've taught this to students before, and, and I, I walk them through what it means to forgive them in your heart and, and how when somebody comes to you and, and they ask you for forgiveness, you should be ready to forgive And I've had a few students who have uh, taken that and walked away and tried to apply it, graciously so. And and when somebody comes to them to ask them for forgiveness, they say, yes, of course I forgive you. I already forgave you in my heart for what you did. That typically doesn't land very well with somebody that's asking for forgiveness, right? When they say, uh, would you please forgive me? And you're like, oh, I already forgave you because I knew you were a terrible person. and, And I had to, in my own heart, forgive you before. Like, no, don't do that. That's not what is happening here. What's happening here is Jesus graciously is saying before they even ask for it in my heart and before the throne of God above, would you please not hold this against them? Forgive them. Who's the them? Man, so much ink has been spilled on who the them is. It's not specified. Is it the Jewish leaders? Is it Caiaphas? Is it the Roman soldiers? Is it Pilate? Is it the people who are actually crucified? Who's the them? I think it's all who are involved in this. I don't think we have to specify one group of people over the other. Jesus had told Pilate, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin, greater than your sin. You have sin, they have sin, they all need forgiveness. I think he is crying out for the forgiveness and pardon of all who are involved. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. A third observation they don't know. They're ignorant. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 17 as he's preaching. He says that you acted in ignorance. There was something that you were missing. There was something that you didn't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says the same thing. Paul literally says, if you had known who you were crucifying, you wouldn't have crucified him. So what were they ignorant about? Well, they were ignorant about the truth. Their eyes were blinded to the truth of who Christ was. Why is that? I think it's, they're ignorant for several different reasons. But I think one of the most important is Jesus claimed to be God, come in the flesh, right? Jesus claimed to be God, a staggering claim. And what ultimately proves that that claim is valid and true is his resurrection from the dead. That hasn't happened yet. This is what Romans chapter 1 says. Paul says that he was proven to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. They didn't have that. Now, that isn't to say Jesus' claims about himself were untrustworthy before he was raised from the dead. No, his claims were credible. They were clear. They were compelling. There was no doubt. But it wasn't by you taking in the evidence of what Christ was doing that you could understand. That's why Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, flesh and blood hasn't revealed to you that I am who I am. It was revealed by the Father giving you that understanding. Therefore, those who did not know and did not see They were ignorant because their eyes had not been fully opened. But please note, their ignorance doesn't excuse them from wrongdoing, or else Jesus would have no reason to ask for their forgiveness. They're ignorant, but they're also guilty. You may be ignorant about things that you are doing that are wrong, but that does not get you off the hook. Ignorance does not mean that you are excused from your wrongdoing. Jesus' prayer ultimately is answered in the salvation of thousands of Jewish people in Acts chapter 2 and 3 when Peter's preaching. It's not Peter's eloquence that saves them. It's Jesus' prayer here. Father, forgive them. And then as Peter preaches to these same people who would kill Jesus, they are saved because of Jesus' prayer. So, Jesus' first saying, a saying of forgiveness, is a saying of of profound implications. One of the implications is this. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. If Jesus can pray for his murderers in the very act of them murdering him with hope that they will be forgiven and they eventually are in Acts 2 and 3, some of them are, many of them are, then no one is ever beyond the reach of Christ and the grace that he has to offer. Please, brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. As you're sharing the gospel with others, as you're pleading for them to receive Christ, don't lose hope. there was ever a moment that you could lose hope, it's when you're being nailed to a, a block of wood by a bunch of murderous people, and yet Jesus says, no, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Implication number two is our own forgiveness of others. So not only is no one beyond the reach of God's grace, but I think a second implication for us from this saying is that we need to be ready to forgive others. We need to be a forgiving people. If Jesus, who could do no wrong, offered such mercy and grace to hardened sinners, then how much more should we, sinful people, who understand what grace and mercy is, we need it, we need it forgiveness. How much more so should we be forgiving people? Jesus could easily have said, I don't get you, I don't understand you, and you don't deserve any forgiveness, and I'm not giving it to you. But instead, what does he cry out? Father, forgive them. It's like Matthew 18. If we have been forgiven much, we must forgive much. We cannot be a people who harbor bitterness or anger in our hearts because of people offending us. And that does not minimize the offense. The offense is real. People do truly, really hurt you as they are truly, really physically, spiritually, emotionally hurting Christ. But that does not relinquish us from the necessity of forgiving. And so, brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you this morning, who is there in your life Who has offended you, who has hurt you, who has wronged you? Maybe they have not even asked you for forgiveness. Maybe they never will ask you for forgiveness. Will you today forgive them in your hearts? Remember how Dane Ortland said it in our book, Gentle and Lowly Release your debtors, release them, forgive them, let them go. Will you pray this prayer? Will you stop with anger and bitterness and resentment and hard-heartedness? Listen to the cries of Calvary. Forgive them. Pray this prayer in your heart. Don't ever, ever harbor bitterness. Brothers and sisters, I want to do something that we don't normally do. Um, I want to stop right here. Because I believe as the Spirit is teaching our hearts, as the Spirit is opening our eyes, as we are listening to the cries of Calvary, uh, we don't want to walk away unchanged. And so I want to ask God to work in our hearts, to open our eyes to who it is that we need to stop harboring bitterness in our hearts towards and forgive. That we would, in our hearts, at this very moment, release our debtors and say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know how badly they've hurt me, But these people didn't know how badly they were hurting Christ. They didn't even know what they were doing. And yet Jesus says, even in their ignorance, Father, forgive them. Will you relinquish your debtors? Will you stop harboring anger and bitterness? Will you be a people who are known for forgiveness and grace? So I just want to take two minutes to bow our heads, to bow our hearts, to quiet ourselves before the Lord and to genuinely ask this question, Lord, who is it that I need to offer forgiveness in my heart to right now? Take away the bitterness, take away the anger, take away the pain in my heart and the offense and feeling like they need to understand. They can be ignorant about what they've done and I can still forgive them. Let's do that together right now and then I'll pray for us and then we'll come back and listen to the second cry from the cross. Let's pray together. Father, I know in my own heart there are people in my life who have hurt me and offended me. Some of them don't even know how badly it it has hurt me. And and it is very easy for me to to look and to say until they know, until they can ask forgiveness for everything that they have done, for every offense and every hurt and every pain that they have caused, it's going to be hard for me to forgive. yet here at the foot of the cross oh father we're undone as we stare at your son who says they don't even know what they're doing they don't even know and yet I can graciously offer forgiveness and mercy father help our church to be known for having no bitterness no anger no wrath against others no judgment of them until they come to a place where they can fully understand how much they've heard us. None of that. God, may we look at Christ and be changed in our hearts. We pray, the name, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The second saying from the cross is a saying of love. So the first saying is a saying of forgiveness. The second saying is a saying of love. This is a saying of love. This is in John chapter 19. So turn with me to John chapter 19. And I would encourage you as you're turning there, where appropriate, maybe with a spouse or maybe with a friend who holds you accountable to things, talk this afternoon with them about how the Lord is encouraging you and who the Lord is bringing to your mind and your remembrance that you need to forgive in your own hearts. Again, where appropriate, don't be a gossip about it. But be held accountable for forgiveness. In John chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus is going to say the second saying from the cross. It's a saying of love. John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. J.C. Ryle says, even in this trying season of bodily and mental agony, our blessed Lord did not forget others. He had not forgotten his brutal murderers, but had prayed for them. And he does not forget his mother. He saw her standing by the cross and knew well her own distress and felt tenderly for her desolate condition, left alone in a wicked world after having lost such a son. He therefore commended her to the care of John, his most loving and tender-hearted and faithful disciple. And he told John to look on her as his mother and told his mother to look on John as her son. No better and wiser arrangement could have been made in every way. What a beautiful picture of love. Christ knows, Christ absolutely knows the distress and turmoil that his mother is facing. He can see it in her eyes. She probably cannot even breathe through her tears and her crying and her weeping. Again, victims were crucified Just high enough so that you could see them through a crowd, but low enough that dogs could still nibble at their feet. And here, Jesus is able to speak to his mother. Just put yourself in Mary's shoes. Never such bliss at Jesus' birth, right? What bliss at the birth of Christ that we get to celebrate at Christmas. And never such sorrow at such an inhumane death. What amazing love that Jesus would know in this moment. She needs tender care. She needs care in this moment, and she needs care beyond this moment, because Jesus knows he's dying, and Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was already dead at this point. We we don't even see him at the wedding at Cana three and a half years earlier, so he's probably uh, been dead before that. So Jesus knows he's been caring for his mother, and if he's gone, no one's there to care for his mother. So he brings... John, who's the only disciple at the foot of the cross of his 12 disciples, he brings John into the service of caring for his mother as if John were her son. What amazing love. Man, if there's ever a time when you can say, you know what, I just need to think about myself and I just need to preserve myself and I need to worry about myself, it's when you're dying, specifically when you're dying for the sins of humanity. And yet Jesus says, in this moment, I'm still going to serve. I'm going to serve murderers, and I'm going to serve my mother. But notice, who is not there at the foot of the cross? Who is not there for Jesus to say, you need to take care of mom? It's his brothers. It's his own family. His brothers and sisters are not there. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? Jude will get saved. James will get saved. His brothers, his half-brothers, technically, will get saved. But on the cross, Jesus dies with a heaviness in his heart of the knowledge that he has been rejected by his own siblings. That's why he has to say to John, Will you take care of my mom? Because none of my family is even here. Do you love your family? How much more do you think Jesus, infinitely holy, loved his family? And he's dying with the knowledge that his family has out and out rejected him. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you have a heavy heart knowing that someone in your family, maybe many people, maybe just one, don't love Jesus, they've rejected Jesus, you can know today that your Savior knows what that feels like. He's dying with that knowledge, and yet he cares for The needs of his mother in practical ways. He doesn't excuse it, well, they didn't believe in me, so that's it. No, he says, I want to serve my mother. A question for us, how quick are you to care for the needs of others? How quick are you to humble yourself, even in the moments of great pain or discomfort, even when it costs you greatly? Who is there in your life that you can love today? Who is there that needs this kind of radical service Maybe it's somebody that you can help put up their Christmas lights. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody in our church that you can reach out to, invite them over for Christmas if they don't have a a family to enjoy Christmas with. Just like I asked you to think and to pray about who you need to forgive, I would just ask you here, write down, who is it that I need to love? Service, sacrifice, intentional care. This is what we see from Christ on the cross in his dying moments. We should live this out every day. The third, question, the third uh, statement or saying from Christ on the cross is a statement of assurance. So we have a statement of forgiveness. We have a statement of love. And third and finally for this morning, we have a statement of assurance. A statement of assurance. This is back in Luke chapter 23. So turn there again. Luke chapter 23. Verse 39, after Jesus has proclaimed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing, and after Jesus has said, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother, John, take care of my mom, I'm not going to be there to take care of her, which means he was doing that all throughout his ministry and all throughout his life after Joseph had died, and now he says in verse 39, a saying of assurance, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? The Messiah, save yourself and save us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We are indeed suffering justly. We're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves were crucified with Jesus, one on the right, one on the left. Mark chapter 15, verse 27 says that the crucified robbers are hurling offenses and abuses at Jesus. Mark 15, verse 32 says they were insulting Christ. So both were insulting. Typically, we have this picture in our mind That one criminal is just mocking Jesus and one criminal is pleading for forgiveness. When they were both crucified, they're both mocking Christ. And yet, somewhere in this span of the first three hours, this thief says, stop. Stop mocking. So my question is always, why? Why does this thief change his tune? He had been mocking Jesus. He had been railing against Jesus. He had been abusing Jesus with his words, and then he stops and he rebukes the other thief to say, stop doing this. Why? What changed? What was it about the way that Jesus was dying that caused this man's heart to be broken over his sin? I think it's the exact same reason that the centurion, you remember at the end when Jesus dies, the centurion says, truly this man was the son of God. What is it that Jesus is doing? Well, we've seen... What he's doing. He's crying out with love and grace and care in the moments of his torturous death. No one's died like this man. Nobody has ever been crucified like this man. That's why the centurion can say, No one's died like him. This man's different. He's the Son of God. Why? Because instead of insulting and attacking those who are murdering him, he's praying for their forgiveness instead of anger in his heart he's compassionate instead of just thinking about himself he's caring about his mom and he's caring about his his uh, disciple who's only there at the foot of the cross and i believe that this thief sees the way that jesus is dying and he says this man's different brothers and sisters what what a testimony to us of what a testimony can do just in the way jesus is speaking this man is going to change his heart's going to be broken What about for you? Is the speech that you speak with one another, with those in your household, with those outside of your household, your friends, your family, those here in our church, would it be seen and heard in such a way that it would change somebody's heart? This thief, both of them actually, are probably accomplices of Barabbas. They're probably shocked to see somebody dying in Barabbas' place. And yet this man is going to be saved. J.C. Ryle quotes Augustine, an amazing quote One of the thieves was saved so that you may not despair. Even a thief can be saved at the moment of their death, can be saved. But, he goes on, only one was saved so that you will not presume. One was saved, so you don't have to despair. Even in the moment of death, you can be saved. Even the worst of criminals can be saved on their deathbed. Don't despair. But at the same moment, don't presume. Not both of them were saved, only one was saved. Why was this man saved? Well, I believe that we can see ourselves in this man. He just simply comes to the end of himself. He is absolutely hopeless, like a leprous man or like the prodigal son, completely hopeless apart from the help of another. What could this man do? Could he walk? Could he do works? He could do nothing. That's why his prayer is not a prayer before the Lord of tell me what I need to do so that I can be saved. No, he simply says, you need to remember me because I can't do anything to be saved. I can't save myself. I'm pinned to a tree. Will you remember me? I love that. It's a question. It's not a demand. You must do something for me. It's will you do this? will you remember me? This is a beautiful place to see the gospel on full display. The thief is simply going to say, Jesus, you need to do the work for me. And Jesus is going to say, it's done. It's done. Look at the simplicity of salvation. What is necessary for one to be saved? I think the thief on the cross is a great place to go to to share the gospel with people because you see a man who, number one, knows that they are sinful and in desperately deserving of the death that they are dying. This man knows I deserve this punishment. I'm guilty and I deserve punishment. Number two, Jesus is not. He is not guilty and he does not deserve punishment. Number three, I can do nothing to save myself. There is no request here for give me three things I need to do. Tell me what aisle I need to walk down. Tell me what prayer I need to pray. This is, I can't save myself. You need to do the work for me. That's the gospel. You are a sinner in need of saving. Otherwise, you will be punished under the righteous wrath of God for your sins, which we all deserve. Jesus is the innocent one who never sinned. He's not guilty. He doesn't deserve this punishment. And the only way that you can be saved is by looking to him to do the work for you. And notice, when this man turns and says, Jesus, remember me, will you please remember me when you go into your kingdom? Notice, number one, he knows Jesus is a king. How does he know Jesus is a king? Pilate had put that placard above Jesus. Here is the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate put out a tract, the first gospel tract, above the head of Christ. And this man says, you're a king. I believe it. I know it to be true. You have a kingdom. Please remember me. He's not even asking to be in the kingdom. He doesn't even think he can get into the kingdom. He's not saying, hey, can I sit at your right hand in the kingdom? Can I be a citizen in your kingdom? He just says, would you remember me? Because I know I'm definitely outside of the kingdom. I don't deserve it. But notice Jesus' response. He said to him, truly, truly, amen and amen. This is, there's no way this isn't going to happen. This is a money back guarantee. I say to you today, emphatically today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. You're not just, I'm not just going to remember you. That would have been enough, right? The thief would have said, thank you for remembering me. Thank you for the promise. And you're not just going to be Somewhere around the kingdom. And you're not just going to be in the kingdom. No, you're going to be with me in the kingdom. Today. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to go through purgatory to get your sins burned away to then go to the kingdom. No, today. What did this man do to be saved? Nothing. Christ did all the work for him. All the work. Even here, we can see Jesus is not the victim, right? He is the victor. He is saving a man on the cross while he is saving us dying on the cross. This is just glory beyond comprehension. The work that he is doing, while he is dying, he's still ministering. And I love the way Herschel York says it. Nothing puts the principalities and powers of hell to shame like granting eternal life to someone at the very gates of hell. Give this thief 30 more minutes and he would have died separated from Christ for all of eternity. But seeing Christ, seeing the way Jesus is dying, hearing the words that he's saying, and coming to a place of contrition and repentance, poor in spirit, bankrupt in soul, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. He says, Please remember me. And Jesus says, That's it, you're saved and all of hell says we lost another one to the glory of Christ. Three sayings, a saying of forgiveness, a saying of love, and a saying of assurance. After those three hours of perfect sunlight like today, it turns black, turns dark. John Stott says, our sins blotted out the sunshine of Jesus' Father's face. Our sins blot out the sunshine of the Father's face. Spurgeon says, it was midnight at midday. People were talking through the first three hours. In the back three, it's silent. No one's going to say anything until the very, very end. And it's going to be four successive rapid fire statements that Jesus is going to say, and then he'll die. We'll look at those next week, Lord willing. But for this morning, as we wrap up our time, a saying of forgiveness, a saying of love, and a saying of assurance. Can I just ask your hearts, do you know someone in your life who needs to hear these words? Take these words to them. Who is there in your life who needs to be reached out to with forgiveness, to be served in love, that you can give the assurance of the gospel to today? Who is there that you can think of that needs to hear these words. You know, I can think of people that need to hear these words. I can think of people who need to hear them. You do. You need to hear these words. I need to hear these words. That's why you're here this morning. That's why we gather together. We need to hear these words. A statement of forgiveness. Do you know and believe and cherish the reality that Christ has offered you forgiveness? If you know that, Can I ask you this morning, if you know the reality of that, can I ask you, have you received it? Or do you still live, even though you are a child of God, do you still live as somebody who is carrying the burden of your shame and your guilt and your sin, even though Christ has said, forgiven, paid in full, sins removed, as far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more, and you say, yeah, but I'll remember them. Do you live with shame and regret, with doubts, flooding your mind and heart. Brothers and sisters, today is the day to hear these words of Christ, the statement of forgiveness that says, spoken over your life as well, forgive them. Past, present, and future forgiveness. And if you're here this morning or you're watching this morning and you do not know the forgiveness that Christ has to offer, you don't believe that that's possible for you, maybe you don't think that somebody as wretched as you could be forgiven. Hear his words this morning. His murderers are being prayed for. They can be forgiven, so can you. There's no one outside the bounds of Christ's grace. But also, maybe you're here this morning and you think you don't need his forgiveness. Maybe you think you're okay on your own. You could be good enough. You can work your way to earn God's love. Maybe You're trying to live in such a way where you don't ever need God's forgiveness, where you can be good enough on your own. The reality is, you you need to stop that charade today. You need to stop playing that game of, I can be good enough. You're not good enough, and you never will be, and that's the best place you can be to say, I need you. You need to hear the words of forgiveness. You need to hear the words of love that Christ has stooped down out of heaven. Just as we're studying in gentle and lowly, he's lowly. He condescends to you. That's what Christmas is all about, to love you, to serve you. He does that today. He does that every day. He's there for you. He loves you. You need to know his forgiveness. You need to know his love and his care for you. And thirdly, finally, you need to know his assurance that he offers, the the assurance of pardon and forgiveness that he gives. He doesn't just want you to think that it's it's a possibility that you could go to heaven or that maybe it'll happen, but you're not quite sure. No, brothers and sisters, he wants you to be assured. John will write it in 1 John. uh, He says it five different times I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, not guess or hope. He wants you to be so confident that nothing can steal your joy. So can I ask you, are you assured of salvation? Are you assured of your position in heaven? Are you assured that you are a citizen of that kingdom? One of the the things that's happened through COVID and through the political landscape of our uh, day and our culture, we have seen so many Christians that are freaking out over what's happening around them just what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in California, what's going to happen in the United States, what's going to happen, they're freaking out. And I would just say, I don't think Jesus died so that we, as believers, would freak out. Jesus died so that we, with full assurance in our souls, would say, I'm a citizen of another kingdom. Come what may, I worship Christ, I follow him, I have total joy, complete peace And nothing can steal that. And if it couldn't be stolen from Christ our Savior as he's crucified, it can't be stolen from us as we follow him. So you need to hear a saying of forgiveness, a saying of love and service, and a saying of assurance. And if you would hear those words today, your life will be radically and forever changed. Father, we thank you so much for our time in your word this morning, that we know we will be with you in paradise, not because of our working, but because of your working. We are so grateful for Christ and the privilege that we have to hear these recorded statements. God, what mercy that you have recorded these seven sayings of Christ on the cross so that we could study them this morning. And Jesus, we are so grateful to be forgiven, to be served and loved by the God of the universe, and to be granted assurance that can never go away. God, there's just nothing else that could give us a greater reason to sing, to be motivated with full assurance in our hearts of your love for us, of our forgiveness in Christ, than what we've seen today. Be glorified as we worship you now through song, Fill our hearts with gratefulness and gratitude and love for our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.